0: Welcome back to City on the Edge, the podcast where we tell Albuquerque and New Mexico stories. I'm Ty Bannerman. Today we are sharing a different kind of story than our usual historical fair. It's still history, but history that's only a few years old. Back in 2014 or so, both Mike Smith and myself worked for Brown Mackey College, a for-profit educational institute with 28 locations across the United States, and one in Albuquerque at the Copper Point building. Both of us were pretty ambivalent about working there, but we were not yet aware of the number of allegations and investigations against the company. Eventually, Brown Mackey was revealed to be predatory, maximizing its profits by, quote, helping low-income students acquire loans to help them complete degree programs that were singularly unrigorous and, in many cases, outright fraudulent. At the Tucson branch, for instance, a legal investigation of the nursing program showed that the administration routinely faked certification documents for its students, that the school nursing staff lacked credentials, and that students were being trained to use veterinary equipment rather than that which is intended for humans. Although Mike and I weren't part of the nursing program in Albuquerque, we both realized fairly quickly that there was little to no oversight for our teaching. And that classes were essentially conducted according to our own standards. With that introduction, here then is Mike's essay, "The Instructor's Story."
1: An ice storm, a snowstorm, a rainstorm, a windstorm, or the parking lot so hot its tarry cracks ooze bright black. The nearby Walmart supercenter a buzz. Even near Interstate 40 loud with motors, tires, horns, air. That's usually how I see the settings of my memories of Brown Mackey College, Albuquerque, where I worked half heartedly in 2016. A doomed for profit college, one of 26 Brown Mackey campuses, each one like a stack of Walgreens in an actual college's trench coat. Whole hum, just here for a movie. Me, a pale white 35 year old father of four, a mega church and a drone maker sharing the white building. A brick-facaded god in a carbage asphalt halo, the desert radiating away south, beyond housing developments, beyond Central Avenue slash old Route 66, our building's echoic entrance, a descent. Black ice could be hazardous there in winter, people approaching the school shuffling tightly across the vast gray parking lot. That whole almost a year, as I recall it, the weather was erratic, the winter's cold sharp enough, the spring winds cracking tree limbs, the monsoon season drier than usual, but on occasion still dramatic. The summer especially on fire, the 36th driest, fourth hottest year since at least 1893 when such records were first kept here. And we all experienced it all firsthand, as students sometimes weekly, made bomb threats to avoid test taking. Sirens and pulsing lights spilling students, faculty, administration, and other staff outside. Black ice and or the fear of and or susceptibility to such hazards, of being swiftly hurt by something unseen, an appropriate metaphor for the uncertain states of almost everybody present. Thanks to desperation, most of us were there. Most of us faculty could find no other work. and The students either didn't know for-profit colleges are all subsidy-hungry scams leading to bad debt, or they realized maybe all colleges are. So why not attend this cheap one, this airy, sunken place that's actually only felt sunken? It was actually an intestinal maze of halls and stairs, half leading to the mega church with its dim, high-ceiling, retro 1970s brown and orange microwave cafe, starry geometric lights, and earnest Christian rock playing half-quietly overhead. As it was, I was typically depressed and anxious while teaching there, and not yet taking medication for all that. So I have mostly only empty feelings of the time, which feels appropriate with how the high-ceilinged interiors of that building felt to me. The building built in 1970, a place I had known twice before, is home to a dazzlingly bright circuit city in whose aisles I had accompanied my younger brother Jeff shopping in 2003, him buying a GPS device and the Minus 5's new CD, Down with Wilco and then as a building I explored alone in 2007, the building then a much vandalized circuit board strewn, ruined by a freeway, a home to the homeless. We've got jobs at least, anyway. Other faculty members would sometimes say that we all had two or three jobs and or we're all looking for something better. My co-workers included Gina, soon to be a progressive local politician, Suzanne, scholar of existentialism and ecofeminism, soon to be a published author, Mary, who wrote and self-published sci-fi novels, Chris, my supervisor, an experimental musician with a following in Asia, and Christoso, a published poet and Apache activist. My good friend, author-historian Tai, also got a job there, and for a brief moment, the faculty had something of a fertile creative scene in that unlikely place. We would go to lunch together and recommend books to one another, that one by one, people chose not to renew their contracts, took better jobs, and or got fired. Mary Jo, the wry older woman increasingly in charge of the school, outlasting maybe everybody, steadily climbed the ranks by taking on more and more initially thankless responsibilities. By my last months there, had all those great responsibilities, great powers, including the ability to fire us all at will. When Mary Jo finally fired me, no doubt deservedly, she intoned the words crisply by phone while I stood on curving stairs of the Natural History Museum in an atrium overlooking a 12-foot tall, 40-foot long Tyrannosaurus Rex skeleton, distracted, half-listening, looking for my two youngest children, Sonora and Willow six and three, who had wandered away. She, Mary Jo, was audibly seething at my disinterest. Who cares about some futureless job I was barely even mentally there for? My kids have wandered out into a busy parking lot. Besides, oh no, not my job in the Titanic. Brown Mackey was failing. Its rush to failure was accelerating, and my kids were in a hallway watching an old turtle out for a walk. Mary Jo I actually knew to be a fascinating person. Someone with fractal, perhaps new age tattoos, though she dressed like an executive, hiding most of them. Somebody who was once a top national salesperson for both a brand of skincare products and a plastic storage container company. But she was professional and cutthroat, and I was neither. Other instructors and I would marvel at her ambition, mainly why, when everything was so clearly collapsing around us. Like the housing market in 2008, for profit colleges in 2016 were a popping bubble, or in the college's case, a deflating balloon. In the July 26, 2017 Atlantic, Derek Thompson wrote, The business model of gobbling up federal money in exchange for delivering a worthless education is drying up. In 2016, the news often included for-profit college chains like and including Brown Mackey filing for bankruptcy, downplaying scandal, and or shutting down. Our campus experienced big trouble when a nursing instructor was found to be unlicensed and uneducated, and the school fired her, but then got caught trying to keep the situation quiet. So that was in February of 2016. And I had briefly known that instructor, Samantha, who had been there since 2015 before me. I can recall her short hair, high cheekbones, smile, and dark eyes. We'd known each other's names and had had mutual friends. Later in July, I saw paper notices taped to glass doors about how med students could transfer. And the crowds of teal-scrubbed med students vanished. Later still in 2017, after being caught here, Samantha relocated to St. Louis, Missouri, and lied again there to work in a hospital's ICU and geriatric psych ward. The wildest part to me is she was a trust fund kid and didn't need the money. Humans. Samantha became something of a half-admired rogue celebrity to the instructors left at Brown Mackey College, Albuquerque, the few I interacted with anyway, with her widely varying schedules. I mean, often, especially late evenings, my class would be the only class in the entire long, multi-story, half-brick facaded building, most of the huge building dark except for maybe a cubicle or two down in the admin area. But those of us who did sometimes talked about her and the quail in the parking lot, the roadrunners, rabbits, lizards, doves, pigeons, sparrows, moths, beetles, and butterflies living around the yuccas, chemisa, desert willows, and various conifers, in the often poison-sprayed medians and landscaping. These were my before and after class companions more than any of my human colleagues, except maybe for Chris, head of the English department, or for Ty for two semesters. My first semester was the only fully staffed and attended semester while I was there, with 107 various staff members and 394 students. Chris had a gleaming gray-black restored muscle car with an immersive sound system I had heard him use, starting and ending in the about 15 acres of parking lot encircling the school, mostly to deconstruct and review his own work, a valuable creative technique. His songs and albums, a heavy psychedelic blend of prog rock, stoner rock, and art rock. Chris, a divorced ex-Mormon father, like me, with a young daughter. Chris had grown up in tiny LeVan, Utah, moving here in adolescence, and had, when we went out to eat, an incredibly bland Utah palate. No spices ever, but he was one of my all-time favorite colleagues, and he became a friend, always helping me, reading my writing, and recommending books, usually classic modern Asian novels. Ty hired on after the school had begun its final decline, admin, desperate for English teachers, and Chris asking if I knew any writers looking for gig work, much as they had hired me a semester before when they were desperate then. I had met Ty in 2007 after he read my photo history book of Central New Mexico's Sandia Mountains, while I became a reader of his blog about Forgotten Albuquerque, which he later adapted into a photo history book of his own. Icicles would lighten down from the looming building. In winter, of course, my earliest months, all gleaming, descending light, and gray drifts of snow would rise from the parking lot. Closures would be reported online and through text alerts on our phones, and students and faculty driving out early sometimes slid across icy laminations. In spring, one morning, I could see other faculty members and students trapped in their vehicles, all made late, including Chris, laughing, distressed, like myself, unwilling to step out into a hard cascade of hail. And the bomb threats kept happening in March and April, with everybody hanging out for hours on concrete sidewalks and around zero escaped medians, beside desert trees, plants and gravel, smokers and vapors ambling off in groups, cop lights flashing, all the med and vet students and scrubs. The faculty I knew would introduce me to other faculty and to students who were often the faculty's ages and older, people I kind of knew, Students and faculty would say hi, and once Chris and I went and sat in his car, and he played me songs from his band Spiral in his secondary project, AMAE, the music summoning a heavy doom-adjacent glacially hard ambience, bass and other deep sounds rolling like thunderclouds over mesas, music perfect for the reverent desert, the desert under asphalt still there, its form still partially apparent in the lot's topography. Seen from the freeway, Copper Point looked appropriately to me like a battleship, Copper Point, a Southeast Heights plaza slash building named nobody ever used because nobody we knew took any pride in it. And there was no sense of unity among its disparate mixed-use tenants. The drone maker, a U.S. Army intake facility, the megachurch, and our would-be college. Toward the end of my time there, toward the end of 2016, before inevitably being fired, just months before the school locked its last door, At and after dusk, I felt at times neo-noir, or like a character in a depressing, perhaps best-left unexplored corner of a Walter John Williams cyberpunk universe, alone or often alone in this long, multi-story building, only some lights on, all of us wallowing in pools of sickly fluorescence, with most students taking almost every opportunity to ignore and stare at the flickering screens of their handheld online computers. It was a dispiriting place to be, and often, there, I wanted to die. Typical me. Ha. Even so, my colleagues often brightened my mood, as did my students. Not every student, of course. Statistically, that's impossible. There's a percentage that must be uh, challenging. This is a natural law. But even those generally had compelling backstories, making them sympathetic. And all were struggling in a rigged system. It was perhaps an angry former student faculty members surmised, a certain student's brother, who had poured turpentine on Mary Jo's custom painted lemon yellow late model Volkswagen bug in October, a story that had brought out police and made the news. I know some students and alumni felt strongly about certain administration and money related matters, one evidently strongly enough to blister the paint off Mary Jo's car's right front fender. I observed a slight young man in a bright hoodie, his face in the ensconcing sky dark, approaching the car in silvery gray parking lot surveillance camera footage played on KOB 4. Mary Jo also received death threats by phone and locked doors and paranoia became our normal. The temperature often fell suddenly at Copper Point, as we were near the west end of Tijeras Canyon between the Sandia and Manzanita Mountains, a much-used channel for winds from far away. I have seen these winds, digitally depicted online, coursing around the planet, and felt them coursing around me between my decrepit escape and the school's front doors, and seen them, their invisible forms outlined in dried yellow and brown leaves, snow, litter, and or dust, looking up at them as if seeing the earth unreeling like film into the sky. If the east wind out of Tejeras Canyon was a river, we were in its delta, and so, in a weather-prone microclimate. Those winds blew to us all the way from Texas, further in winter, cooling, cooling across the Great Plains, cooling across the high-staked plains, meeting their first major obstacle, our mountains, before being tightly funneled into Tejeras Canyon and then blasted out right at us. For lunch, sometimes Chris, Ty, and others and I would eat fast food ordered from drive throughs congregating upstairs in the church overlooking its spacious, high-ceilinged public central hall not its auditorium, capacity 2,000. I liked looking up high along one wall at a thick dotted line of rectangular windows, each northeast facing pane just low enough to frame parts of an apparently mostly featureless high ridge of the Sandias, those geological, geographical realities reduced by scope and distance to only minimalist lines and planes, rock against sky, gray on blue. Views of the mountains transformed outside, of course, from the building's long northern front along I-40, from the building's narrower eastern side, the space for those drone-making creeps, and two tall parallel displays of decorative industrial-style ironwork, welded and signed in 1970 in Chattanooga, Tennessee, pointing mountainward, and from the long southern back, its tenants' industrial, nocturnal, private, absent, and or the New Mexico Department of Records. Gray mountains, gray freeway, gray parking, insufficient serotonin, and or where I was had me seeing all gray. The building's west end, with the campus's vet and med schools, pointed toward the West Mesa's volcanoes, the West Mesa with its 11 unsolved femicides slash mass grave, and toward a distant Mount Taylor, in Navajo, Tzutzil, Bluebead Mountain, and really the building's every side faced mountains as Albuquerque hums and rests in a desert river valley. The bulldozing of an irregular topography into a flat site is clearly a technocratic gesture which aspires to a condition of absolute placelessness, wrote critic, architect, historian Kenneth Frampton, and Toward a Critical Regionalism, Six Points for an Architecture of Resistance, in 1983's The Anti-Aesthetic, Essays in Postmodern Culture. A true placelessness remains elusive. The 247,166-square-foot, multi-story, manufactured mesa that was Copper Point, in 1971, an electronics manufacturing plant, in 2016, a much taller place that held the 34,000 square feet of Brown Mackey College, Albuquerque, was a minimalist, modernist architectural marvel, only in the dark, in my opinion. Several random facades concealed the building's walls, included shiny copper shingles and those bricks. Faux-Victorian lampposts stood all around the building, and long mist-watered ferns and ivy hung from ornamental trellis work above the main entrance between the college and the 83,000-square-foot megachurch, then Copper Point Church, who advertised on billboards along I-40 and I-25. Church like never before. A church so non-judgmental, understanding, and hip that its cafe area featured a wall-spanning, printed-on-glass, phototextual display about how Albuquerque is a wilderness of sin, quote-unquote. Despite florid architectural details and nationalistic, theistic, corporatist tenets, I see the building now mostly as a created object, a box, a prism, there in the middle Rio Grande Valley near the foothills of the Manzanitas, reasonable only in its modern urban context, as unnatural as a pack of gum in a storm-dug ditch, The pack artificially symmetrical, but making the valley around it shine briefly even more like it was than it was in comparison. More weathered, old, alive, big, not made. Who let the dogs out? Woof, woof, woof. Sometimes FM radio stations would extend tall antenna from station vehicles in the school parking lot. Big Eye 107.9, 100.3 the peak, and try to create an event, broadcasting live, distributing keychains, but our student population rarely got excited about much. In all my evening classes, at least, they were all exhausted from work. Two years before, in 2014, I had been copywriting in a small silver skyscraper uptown and clerking in BookWorks, an independent bookstore near the river, where, on July 10th, legendary critic, curator, activist, Lucy Lippard shared from her new book, Undermining, a wild ride through land use, politics, and art in the changing West, speaking as she has in a video at a museum in Houston, Texas, where Rick Bass and Ty were from, saying, the antithesis of the city, the classic erection, is its birthplace, the pit, the gravel pit, the construction site. Easing my glance up and along the industrial age altar of the Copper Point building in 2020, the point slash point of what? Some giant buried weapon? I'm frightened. Researching and writing this, the trees years larger, the northernmost parking lot now a freestanding dialysis center, a four-story holiday Inn express now just east. I could see Lepard's words mirroring reality. Buildings as phallic thrusts of modernity, in and out of ionic earthen holes, are civilization born of such artificial natural unions. September 11th, 2001 is a startling reversal, towers to pits, quote-unquote, and this building part of all that, the human story and its unconscious symbols. Almost every day, some weeks, I would drive there morosely, exiting I-40 South at Eubank, facing the stony line of the hollowed-out Four Hills, post-World War II until 1994, full of perhaps 2,500 nuclear weapons, still nearby, perhaps more than anywhere else, and then driving copper east between a car lot and the giant Walmart, slipping underneath a declarative arch, Copper Point, likely dating to the 2008 restoration, when the building-slash-plaza was made over just in time for catastrophic economic collapse and two years of sitting totally empty. Walking from my car to my job site, parking lot, lot, sidewalk, walkway, door, magnetic swipe card entry to prevent a school shooting, at least to stop shooters unwilling to shoot glass, Door, hallway, 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 maybe stairs, sometimes an elevator, hallway, hallway, and then the classroom, often windowless, upstairs often cinder block walled, and always fluorescent lit. My classrooms varied, but usually had a wooden podium I could stand behind, or a scuffed wood grain patterned table or desk I could sit behind, with a dry erase whiteboard and a roll-down screen behind me, and a ceiling-mounted digital projector pointed at the screen, half pointed at me like a cyclopean eye or a drone. I would stand behind that podium or sit behind that desk and face the rows of usually uneager students in the eye, or we would all sit around a table and I would take attendance or forget to and we'd welcome everyone back. Anybody do anything interesting since last time, I might ask. No, they would usually say, distracted, though later I would learn they had. I felt so strange so regularly in this valley, in that box, in that body. I was that body. Facing other bodies, standing, opening my body's face to instruct, quote-unquote, others. Me, not so much an instructor, as a deeply depressed ideological saboteur privately committed to convincing students to drop out and hike the Appalachian Trail. No one ever did. Sigh. In 2016, my body, a puppet or a camera, my brain, an exhausted puppeteer or a tired eye. I was not flourishing. A classroom's windows might open to mountains. The Jemez, a collapsed supervolcano to the north, the Sandia Manzano uplift, limestone capped granite, once my home, to the east. Sierra Ladrones, pyramidal, mostly granite, an eighteenth century hideout not far south. Mount Taylor, grey, volcanic, often snow covered to the west, behind the Rio Grande's rift. Behind the Rio Grande Rift's line of sunburnt cinder cone volcanoes, ancient processes in process on every side, the box of our school afloat on the storm-carved, human-transformed ground of a river valley, still being carried away grain of sand by grain of sand by the Rio Grande toward the Gulf of Mexico, with new grains here constantly from as far north as Colorado, from mountains three miles above sea level. Life evolved on earth and up onto land, navigating rocks, water, and other life. Humans evolved, hunting, gathering, farming, multiplying, warring, colonizing, industrializing, globalizing, and then, after all that, we got together, twice a week per class, or some classes, three times a week. Except the feeling then, mine at least, was not of being part of something mythic, but that we had all been swept there to circle sedately in a dirty whirlpool, in a sprawling parking lot. We gathered in rooms so plain I wrote of one, if I had taken my glasses off, it would have been like being inside an enormous egg, in what I call a real-time essay, A Brightness in April, written about and during April 2016. That essay I have followed with another every 25 months since. May of another hard year, some thoughts in 2018, publishing Collective Unrest, and June reading A City this year in 2020. Preparing the latter, I remembered what began that essay cycle and where I worked then and felt a half-urgent need to feel more done with that near, placeless place, to finally swallow it all or cough it up. The air was a presence in that long cinder block box, often too cold when hot out or hot when cold out, usually experienced as relief followed by discomfort. The air was always there to feel a coiled current moving and there to hear the cooling or heating rumbling churning also churning all of us like ghosts of the damned, ha, kind of, through the halls and inside. I had taught college before as a pre-union adjunct professor at the University of New Mexico, 10 miles southwest, but the students there and the students at Brown Mackey were from completely different worlds of privilege and struggle. That's a generalization, but mostly true. At Brown Mackey, I had students who were homeless or close to it, and some just out of prison. Many students there had been in the military, most apparently offered a Brown Mackey quality education, in exchange for serious injuries, haunted eyes, and enduring PTSD. Most were chill, but one had been a soldier in the early 2000s and turned in a sadistic essay about helping burn a man to death in Iraq, shooting him after chaining him to gasoline barrels, a suspected terrorist, he claimed. and He felt guilty, he claimed. The words this man leaked out through a smirk left me unconvinced. That guy kept a shark's dead gleam in his eye beneath the gleam on his scalp and topped my mental list of students who might someday show up in full body armor strapped with AR-15s, pipe bombs, and a duffel bag full of ammo. I'm so relieved I was wrong. But even now, I think, I hope he never reads this. And I hope Nietzsche was right that most people are too self-absorbed to be malicious. My favorite hilariously cynical sort of optimism. Another student half yelled at me for fact-checking an article-slash-assignment which repeated bad-faith talking points pushed by oil companies since the 1970s about how climate change was a left-wing hoax and not something we saw all around us all the time. And this was during yet another bad wildfire season around the planet, the smoke from the Doghead Fire of June 2016 and the Manzanos to the east making us cough indoors, ash snowing onto the roof and parking lot. That student I gave the chance to rewrite his paper, citing valid sources for full credit, but I don't think he did. He was homeless, sometimes with a shopping cart full of his belongings parked outside on the side, so things were harder for him. I also saw needle marks on his arms. TV's Breaking Bad gives the mistaken impression that Albuquerque is completely overrun by meth, I had tweeted, joking darkly in 2012. But really, heroin is just as big a problem. He quit school mid-semester, but I still saw him sometimes, waiting outside for his girlfriend, her a top student, to finish class. She was homeless, too, and or had been. She once wrote an essay about how her boyfriend had cut all the hundreds of rose blossoms from the public rose garden besides the Northeast Heights Library, their garden, or so it felt to them, where they often slept, snowing all down onto her, multicolored armfuls and armfuls, blossoms and petals, and the scene as she wrote it was a romantic thrill that really challenged me to just read it. After that in another essay, she intercut between childhood and adulthood around the unexpected motif of startling explosions literal and emotional, writing about being a rich young girl at night on a boat in Saudi Arabia, watching a crowded yacht anchored nearby suddenly explode, about being an extremely poor adult getting wasted with her partner in a trailer in America when a bottle of vodka left on a hot stove turned fireball. She wrote also about a time she spent working deep in dark corners of the Las Vegas, Nevada underworld. Her writing was powerful and personal, and I sincerely hope she pursued it. I could easily write another essay just about the students there. So I've probably already shared too much about too many. After finals, once, a student suggested a flattering but unethical transaction. Her, breathy, leaning in, fingering a top button. I will do anything to pass. Anything. Me, depressed, uninterested, and way in love with my then-girlfriend-slash-now-wife. Uh, no, that's okay, I'll just pass you. Life was but a dream, as always. Sometimes I fell asleep during course-relevant films I showed. And the dialogue, sounds, and music of, say, Capote would blend into my actual dreams. Philip Seymour Hoffman as Truman Capote, as an animated dog on a cinder block wall. My students included a wiry older woman who became a friend, scintillating, fierce, somebody who had lived a harsh life on and close to the street, yet who maintained an almost contagious attitude of joy and curiosity, often attending class in neon wigs, stylized makeup, and cabaret-slash-burlesque-style clothing and heels. She would turn in handwritten papers, something explicitly forbidden by my and basically every syllabus, but wrote and talked sometimes of her romantic partner, who was in prison for being falsely accused of pedophilia, pedophilia, and shared letters he had written in a clumsy hand. Then the guy was paroled from prison, and my student had a big welcome home party at a local billiards and karaoke lounge 3.1 miles northwest, and Morrow, my then-girlfriend slash now-wife, and I attended, drinking a bit, the booze unnecessary for the event's unreality, but necessary... (laughs) Mario, a professional musician, slaying Fleetwood Mac's landslide in karaoke. Well, I've been afraid of changing, because i built my life around you. I really liked my student and wanted her insistence on her partner's innocence to be justified. But the moment I met the guy in a dim booth, shaking the hand of that crag of a man, I knew, oh no, this guy's totally a pedophile, 100%, for sure. My certainty increased when I mentioned hearing he may appeal his conviction, but he just harumphed and mumbled. Small chance of his innocence shrank to almost nothing in my mind, though I am glad juries require more than people's feelings to convict. Despite all that, my student and her educated, unexpectedly level-headed adult kids were good company, and the evening was memorable. Days later, the student came to class crying that her landlord was going to evict her because her newly released partner was a convicted sex offender. I was not unmoved, but mentally agreed with her classmates who encouraged her to ditch the creep. I heard later she did. What would it have looked like if the heat signatures of every life in our building were lit up as a real-time hologram, everybody reborn as luminous beings, folding, unfolding in a lightless matrix? I can easily imagine Copper Point's creepy drone makers watching us like that, testing surveillance tools, Holloman Air Force Base style. In 2000, I built a playground with several Los Alamos scientists, life's wild here, and one told me he was working on remotely tracking against the much stronger electrical fields of the Earth, the electrical fields of individual soldiers. In the megachurch, actually in the megachurch, really, upstairs above the cafe. I taught a spring semester writing class, all of us around a long table, and learned one student had literally been a police officer who had terrorized and tear-gassed me in an anti-police violence protest in March of 2014. I'd even written about that night in Albuquerque's alibi, an alt-weekly newspaper, APD ad absurdum, April 3rd, 2014, but chose not to say anything as I listened to this ex-cop laugh describing how fun it had been. I was hoping to discover common ground and understanding, but only discovered police departments should test more strictly for intelligence and empathy, and should not carry guns, it should not exist anymore as they are. If I remember correctly, he had been fired from APD for obnoxious Christian zealotry and was suing to recover his job. I'm fairly sure he was also a young Earth creationist who believed all life on Earth had been just thought into being by a powerful god only millennia before, this trickster deity hiding dinosaur bones all around the planet and here just to test people's faith. A moving, multi-layered essay turned in by a twenty-something woman left me affected, as if by great literature. Her writing about, among other things, having grown up homeless here in Albuquerque, being a homeless teenager, starving, really starving, getting away with shoplifting under the watchful eyes of kind store employees, encountering danger and abuse, and hot-wiring vehicles in winter just to run the heater someplace quiet and sleep until the gas tank emptied. Now and then I would consider inviting some of the very good, though usually very rough, writers I had met among the generally checked out, often Deadpool or Minion hoodie-wearing student population of our barely a community corporate parody of a campus to join a group that would really obsess over the art of writing. The student above would have been among the few invited. I had been contemplating that group, even making distant plans to compile and edit a campus anthology when she came into class one day and, with a swift motion of a metaphorical knife, killed my tiny dreams. The night before had been an election rally for Donald Trump at the Albuquerque Convention Center, and friends of mine, quote-unquote, thugs, Trump tweeted, had protested it, and things got rowdy enough, APD called it a riot. But she had attended and came to class next day in a long-sleeved Vermilion shirt with Trump across the front. With everything that vile man represented even then, the ignorance, hatred, lies, and greed, I felt gutted. Mentally, I said goodbye. I really do hope she's pursued her writing, though, and thought her way to a kinder, more socially responsible politics. I choose to remember her as she was in class the day she excitedly submitted her writing online to literary magazine, The Sun, via a classroom computer, even though they foolishly rejected it, probably barely even reading it because it wasn't about dogs in New England in the fall. And I chose to remember how I felt sometimes after class, walking to my car at times, the last car in the lot, the mountains dark, the freeway assessorate hush, the mountains highest peak shining, the city era solid, me feeling like maybe... Probably not, but maybe some of the things I had taught had positively affected someone. Long after that year, like four years after, just about now, really writing this, I would remember good moments, meaningful chapters, and hopeful outcomes. Back then, I often thought only that if ever I were to write about teaching at that contained corporate institution, as its bottom line overlords strategically shut it down, despite our campus reportedly still turning a profit. It would be as an ironic parallel to inspirational teacher movies like Dead Poets Society or Dangerous Minds, maybe using that subgenre's basic plot points and motifs to remind me of all that I have to explore slash process from my time at Brown Mackey, my account about an often joyless, easily defeated teacher being mostly ignored by most students, students who I felt mostly just wanted to grade. I could make myself laugh whenever I thought about writing this, but thought even more that I wanted to write it using Rick Bass's short story, The Hermit Story, as a direct model and companion the way James Joyce's Ulysses used Homer's Odyssey, matching themes, vocabulary, events, characters, motifs, settings, more. I taught both The Hermit Story and Joyce at Brown Mackey. A student once telling me how much he loved Joyce's extremely Irish, The Dead, because its central dinner party scene reminded him of his Mexican-American family's music-filled matanzas in the South Valley, filling my heart with art's power to transcend culture, the universal and the specific. Other students questioning me about The Hermit Story. And what? Is that real? About that frozen lake with all that water drained out from under its ice? Is that, like, something that could happen? Bass said he wrote this after hearing it was. And would it really have exploding swamp gas in it, and you could walk around under the ice? Well, no search results. The story involves a dog trainer demonstrating to a dog owner his just-trained dog's hunting abilities across blizzard-scoured Saskatchewan prairie, of blankness believing, apparently, that they would eventually walk out of the bad winter conditions and not die first. I first read this story in Best American Short Stories, 1999, chosen by Amy Tan. My oldest sister, Leanne, R.I.P., gave me that book. But they get lost in a snowstorm and find a frozen lake with its subsurface water having trickled out, and the characters are able to descend Wonderland-style through a hole to beneath the ice, take shelter, get warm, sleep, and explore. All blue and silver, their dried cattail torches, sometimes exploding pockets of methane. Gray, silver, blue, white. The story swirls in wintry blankness. A paragraph suggests the icy lake with its explosions flaring orange beneath the blue ice could be a metaphor for a dog's brain. Synapses firing, neurons alight. The title, the hermit story. Who even is the hermit in the story? The trainer, once called an artist. The dog owner, the writer, the reader. I think of the lake as the brain of every artist slash creator, every artist a hermit, apart, alert, watching. I saw our building as that improbable subterranean space, exiting its doors, its side doors, usually to avoid Mary Jo slash any questions about tedious slash necessary online data entry I was typically avoiding. I felt emergent. Now I'm coming up for air. I sang once or twice, walking to my silver escape, the song erasers, and the song Wilco's. I'm coming up. Lost in a seemingly static blizzard of endlessly reconfiguring matter and energy, at least as old as our 13.8 billion-year-old universe, at least, I had wandered in beneath the school's icy rooftop in early 2016, held in as its various spaces, room by room, exploded light into being. Sappho is a badass bitch. A young Latina woman, much tattooed, with dark, drawn-on eyebrows and hoop earrings. That's kick-ass ABQ style right there. Told me in a bright room one night. Her, one among three literature students, being taught out, completing their credits on campus after the company's June declaration of bankruptcy. After we had read aloud and discussed over two nights all of Mary Barnard's wonderful 1958 translation of Sappho's 2,500-year-old poetry. Our tiny group just feeling the power of art and a connection across time. And that living exclamation had lit the space up in other ways. Synapses firing, faces shining. I suspect my experiences there were equal in value to my experiences almost anywhere. There's only one story, really, and entering the front doors there, I plunged right into it. Often, I was just too sad and anxious to see that. I met many good people there, including faculty and administration members who genuinely cared about education. Still, for-profit colleges are a racket. The entire system is predatory. Read Lower Ed, The Troubling Rise of For-Profit Colleges in the New Economy by Tressie McMillan-Kottam. An infuriating little book and avoid them. Such are my thoughts on a time spent literally and emotionally in a box in a valley.
0: Thank you for stopping by City on the Edge, and thank you especially to our patrons who are essentially angelic beings who, out of their endless compassion, contribute monetarily to this project via patreon.com/slash city on the edge. And they are Natasha. April, Isaac, Jean-Eve, Jen Panhorst, Joshua, Moon, Rachel, Steve, Brian and Corrine, Dwayne, John and Gio, Kelsey, Melanie, Roland, Sean, DK, Adric, Ben, Charlie, Jennifer, Jesse, Neil, Nicole, and Elaine. Thank you guys so much. If you prefer your Albuquerque, New Mexico stories with a visual component, we do have a YouTube channel now. Just go to YouTube and search for City on the Edge Albuquerque. Um, And, of course, we are on Facebook and Twitter and so forth. Just look for City on the Edge Albuquerque there as well. Uh, Thank you all so much for coming by, and we'll have another episode for you probably the beginning of January.